When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie Easton. This, this is the Sunday Sun. In today's episode, we dive into the lab-grown meat industry, we hear the crucial next steps of NASA's Artemis mission, and scientists are tapping into limited solar energy from space. But first, it was on this day in 1834, the electric motor was invented by American inventor Thomas Davenport. Every year, households across the country get misty-eyed at the latest Christmas adverts. Retailer John Lewis traditionally leads the pack with a heartfelt emotive story, and this year was no different. All the small things. Called The Beginner, this year's John Lewis Christmas ad shows a middle-aged man struggling to learn how to skateboard. At the end of the clip, it's revealed that his endeavour was to help bond with his foster daughter who comes to visit, clutching her own board. It's pretty heartwarming stuff. So heartwarming you can forget that what you're watching is in fact an advert. As a nation, we love these ads, but we wanted to get to the bottom of why. So we decided to have a sit-down with Anne-Marie Hanlon, a digital marketing lecturer at Cranfield School of Management. Hey Anne-Marie, thanks for joining us. So, every year the big supermarkets and retailers spend millions and millions on mini-movie TV ads, and sometimes they don't even bother showing the food. Why do they spend so much time and effort on these type of ads, and what message are they trying to convey? The purpose of an ad is to get some sort of engagement whether that's people talking about it, sharing it, thinking about it or commenting about it or acting on the message. And the ads that really work well are those that actually get an emotional connection with us. And consumers do respond much better to messages with an emotional appeal rather than just a rational appeal. The emotional appeal tells a story and it makes you say, ah, or wow, or look at that, or it made me cry, or this happened when I saw that. Did you see that ad? You remember the ad, and then when you take out your wallet, it's front of mind. There has been a shift in the content of the adverts over the years. It used to be about showcasing Christmas food and stuff, and now it just seems like they want to tell a greater and more elaborate story. Why has this trend shifted towards that kind of storytelling? Absolutely. There was a time when, as you say, the all Christmas ads just focused on pile it high, sell it cheap, lots and lots of products at really great prices, and it was all pretty similar. It was very much, I'm selling this, so are you, and so are they, it's all the same. There was nothing distinguishing, there was nothing different about the product offers. So John Lewis threw a curved ball in some years ago, And instead of saying, here are all the products, they turned around and they said, ah, listen to our story. This is about a story about our brand. And as soon as they did that, other brands started doing exactly the same thing and started telling us stories. We remember stories 
but we might not remember who has the cheapest mince pies or Christmas pudding or turkey offers. As viewers and consumers, we blooming love these ads. When they come out, we compare them to see which one is best. It's like the supermarkets have got us hook, line and sinker. Why do we, as consumers, love them so much, even though we know it's an advert? I think we don't mind being sold to as such, but Christmas ads are different. Christmas ads have become part of the journey towards the festive season. You see the John Lewis advert, you see the little advert, the the M&S advert, whatever it is. And it's a signal that Christmas is coming. The holidays are on their way. And it brings us back to... In, in theory, a time of joy where we spend more time with our family. The John Lewis ads are famous for having a deeper message and often have been linked with charity campaigns. And this year, they've partnered with Action for Children and Who Cares in Scotland. Does the storytelling element speak to our hearts? Does it make us more charitable and giving, do you think? It's a really interesting question. My favourite ad this this year is actually The Little Bear. We never intended to create a Christmas character. It just happened. And one big Christmas shop later, a new stuffed star was born. Some sort of little bear. And the little bear is a great story of lost and found over Christmas. And little have been incredibly creative about this because they're showcasing a product that you can't buy. So they're showcasing this little bear that isn't for sale. It's not available. But what they are saying is they're playing on this whole key cultural artifact, the teddy bear. And everybody remembers, hopefully, having a teddy bear as a child. And it's something you cling on to and it's nostalgic. But they're also attaching this to a deeper message, which is not everybody has a bear for Christmas. So they really brilliantly have put in a toy bank in all their stores to encourage shoppers to actually leave toys. Now, maybe you buy them from Lidl, maybe you buy them from somewhere else, but you donate a toy this Christmas to make sure every child has a bear this Christmas. And this is really brilliant and really creative and very clever because it's not focusing on the concept of something you can buy in store, but it's focusing on the the lost and the found and the happy ever after, which, okay, maybe they can't completely deliver, but they're taking us on that journey. As time changes rapidly in the wake of the lockdowns, a pandemic, war, a cost of living crisis, you name it, are we going to start to see them fading out of fashion? I think Christmas 2022 has seen, has signalled a change in tone in the Christmas ads. So the Christmas ads for 2022 are much more toned down. They're much less extravagant in places I think the retailers realise that they can actually, instead of creating a stereotypical, here is a lot of food advert, they can actually use the advert for good. They can actually use this to actually deliver a message that does much more good beyond just the Christmas shopping basket. How close are we to cruelty-free meat? Well, probably a lot closer than you think. For the first time ever, the US Food and Drug Administration has approved meat grown in a lab. They've given the green light to California-based upside foods, meaning our friends across the pond could soon find their favourite synthesised meat products on the supermarket shelves. 
The process of creating this type of meat is pretty interesting. Scientists first extract a biopsy, a small sampling of cells from a living animal taken with a needle or a small incision. Then they place the cells in tanks where they're fed the nutrients like fat, sugars and vitamins that they need to multiply. And when they grow big enough, they get moved into larger bioreactors. And then, after two to eight weeks, you've got edible meat. The FDA says the world's experiencing a food revolution. And the FDA is committed to supporting innovation in the food supply. Uma Valetti is Upside Food CEO. He says he stopped eating meat in medical school when he saw the detriment of mass meat production. But then he saw an opportunity for a slaughter-free option. During my work in cardiology, we were working on stem cells and injecting them into patients' hearts to regrow the heart muscle. And that's where this idea came from of could you grow meat directly from animal cells? And if so, what would that mean for the world? It has significantly lower environmental uh, impact, which means less downsides, less greenhouse gas emissions, less uh, water pollution, and also, really importantly, I think, less use of energy for making the same amount of meat in the world. With explosive population growth and global demand for meat expected to double over the next 30 years, Valetti believes a lab-grown option is the innovative solution we need. Animal agriculture is responsible for as much as 20% of total greenhouse gas emissions and if meat consumption continues according to the current trends, it could be impossible to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Advocates believe that cultured meat will reduce the need to slaughter animals. We're looking forward to a future where we can produce uh, very large quantities of meat uh, without having the downsides of intense uh, animal agriculture. Americans will be able to feast on this new type of meat in just a few months. Whilst here in the UK, lab-grown meat's still some way off. But the big question is, would you eat it? Still to come on the Sunday 7, award-winning medical inventions and an update from NASA's Artemis programme. Last week, NASA's Artemis rocket took to the skies on a mission to the moon. Sitting atop the rocket is the Orion spacecraft. Although it's unmanned this time, it's equipped with a mannequin which will register the impacts of the flight on the human body. You know, uh, I would say uh, when I saw it lift off, uh, it was a dream. You know, it's the first step we're taking to long-term deep space exploration for not just the United States, but for the world. I mean, we are going back to the moon. We're working towards uh, a sustainable program. And this is the vehicle that will carry the people that will land us back on the moon again. That's Artemis program lead Howard Hughes speaking to BBC's Laura Kusenberg. According to Howard, this test flight's just the beginning as NASA prepares to venture deeper into space than ever before. If the current Artemis flight's a success, then the next would be with a crew, followed by a third, where astronauts would land on the moon again for the first time since Apollo 17 50 years ago. Once the safety of Artemis's components and systems has been tested and proven, the plan is to have humans living on the moon. You know, certainly in this decade, I mean, we're going to have people living now. The durations, you know, depending on how long we will be on the surface, you know, they'll be living, they'll have habitats, and they'll have rovers on the ground. That's what we're also working on at NASA. So not only are we be able to uh, work in delivering people to the moon, getting people down in the surface of the moon, they still have to have an infrastructure. They have to have a habitat to live in. They have the fancy rover they're going to drive around. But the goal isn't just to get people up there for a cushy life away from the problems on Earth. It's more than living. It's, it's really about science. You know, we're going to the South Pole because, you know, water, you know, the, the theory is there's ice and there's the, able to extract water. That's huge. You know, being able to convert that into uh, a potential uh, propul- um, fuel 
uh, for our propulsion systems is going to be a, a, a very interesting scientific, but also just the geological aspects of it. You know, we, we did collect uh, lunar rocks and things like that, but if, if there are organisms that are embedded in that ice and things like that, could, could we be able to uh, discover something uh, new. And that's not all. In returning to the moon, the hope is we can go even further. Moving forward is really to Mars. You know, that is a, a bigger stepping stone, a two-year kind of journey, uh, potentially, depending on the orbit you take. And so it's, it's really going to be a, a very important for us to learn a little bit beyond our Earth's orbit and then, and then do a big step uh, when we go uh, to Mars. Smart sensor for dressings, which indicates how well a wound is healing, has won this year's prestigious James Dyson Award International Prize. Smart Heals a smart pH sensor integrated with a wound dressing. It can access the wound and detect infection without the need to remove the dressing. This is Tomas Ruchinski, Smart Healer's developer, speaking with Reuters. Chronic wounds are wounds that uh, don't heal properly. They take months, some, sometimes years, to heal. So uh, with such wounds, every time you take off the band-aid uh, dressing, you're introducing new pathogens, you risk infections, uh, you disrupt the tissue, slowing the healing process, and for most importantly, it's very uncomfortable for the patients, it's painful, so yeah, uh, with Smart Heal, you can uh, see beneath the dressing without taking it off. Smart Heal was invented by three Polish students at the University of Warsaw. They plan to use their £30,000 prize money to start clinical trials and hope to start sales as soon as 2025. Still to come on the Sunday 7, the true scale of Tonga's volcano eruption and a lesson on the birds and the bees. Right after this. You're listening to the Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. Scientists have discovered the true ferocity of a huge volcanic eruption off the coast of Tonga in January. When Hunga Tonga Hunga Harpai blew its top, it scattered water vapours and ash halfway to space and sent tsunami waves swelling out across the world. It was so powerful, it even disrupted cloud systems as far as the UK. A new survey now offers a fresh picture of the scale of what happened. Scientists have fully mapped the area around the volcano, showing just how badly the seafloor has been sculpted and scarred. This is Dr Kevin Mackay, a marine geologist who led the survey, speaking with the BBC. We didn't map enough. We, this volcano even exceeded our maximum expectations about how far the effects of this eruption was on the seafloor. It really was an absolutely outstanding event. The eruption produced one of the biggest atmospheric explosions in history and the impression left on the seafloor gives a sense of its violent energy. Scientists calculate that some 10 cubic kilometres of material has been displaced. That's equivalent to the volume of 4,000 Egyptian pyramids. Two-thirds of that was the ash and rock ejected out of the volcano's opening. But the other third was material scraped off the sides of the volcano as debris fell back out of the sky and tumbled across the bottom of the ocean. The, the plume itself rose 53 kilometres into the atmosphere. I mean, this was truly the most dramatic event 
um, in volcanic history since since possibly Krakatoa in 1883. This eruption was extraordinarily powerful, but there are similar volcanoes lurking underwater off coastlines around the world. By understanding what happened and why, there may be lessons to help us prepare for the future. Despite what you might have been told, pregnancy is not all about the birds and the bees. In fact, it's thanks to a humble amphibian that we even have modern-day pregnancy tests. This is Jeff Stryker, a scientist and curator at the Natural History Museum. He explains how frogs played a surprising and important role in improving women's health care. In the 1920s, an unassuming amphibian took centre stage in the science of prenatal prediction. When looking for similarities between humans and the clawed frogs, they realized that the females produced eggs when injected with HCG, that's human chorionic gonadotropin. This hormone is released in large amounts by humans shortly after the zygote implants in the uterus. That means it's a pretty good test for pregnancy. To test for a pregnancy, the frog was injected with a woman's urine. If it produced eggs within 18 hours, that implied the woman was pregnant. Surprisingly accurate, this inexpensive and accessible test massively improved healthcare for women and was a standard method of testing for pregnancy until the 1960s. Because of being sent around the world as a pregnancy test, the clawed frog became an important model system for the study of developmental biology and also even fields as interesting as artificial intelligence and robotics. The idea of wireless power has transfixed scientists and engineers for decades. It sounds like science fiction. Imagine robots building structures in space to capture the sun's power. Its energy is converted into microwaves and beamed to Earth, collected by a field of antennas and turned into electricity. It's not science fiction that it's not just something on paper or in the lab, that it's ready to be deployed at a small scale. And of course the challenge with applying this to space-based solar power is extending that scale and that power by a dramatic amount. And that will take some time. It's a huge challenge, of course. Well, that was Sanjay Vijendran from the European Space Agency. The challenge he describes is one that scientists are readily taking up. At the aerospace firm Airbus, researchers are running a small demonstration in their Munich lab. In their experiment, two kilowatts of power were collected from solar panels and sent wirelessly from a transmitter to a receiver at the other end of the room. That electricity lights up a model city. There's a long way to go from this small demonstration to sending back solar energy from space. A million times more power needs to be transmitted and it's got to be sent a million times further. But the engineers at Airbus think it could be done. Scientists have been wanting to do this for flipping ages. In 1977, NASA claimed that space-based solar power could replace fossil fuels. It's reliable, will probably last billions of years, and if you collect its energy from above the Earth's atmosphere in space, it can be done continuously. By building huge solar satellites in space, NASA believes some of the sun's tremendous energy can be captured to lessen our dependence on more conventional fossil fuels. Unlike solar energy on the ground, which is interrupted by nighttime in clouds, this method of solar energy capture generates power around the clock. It's only now it might become cost-effective because rockets can be used over and over again. 
Josef Aschbacher is the Director General for the European Space Agency and he's hopeful that these plans could revolutionise the way we see energy here on Earth. If you could do it from space, and I'm saying if you could because we are not yet there, uh, then this would be absolutely fantastic. Solar-based uh, uh, power from space could really help enormously to address our energy shortages and our energy problem, which, which is about to come uh, in, in the next decades. As energy prices soar and the destructive impact of climate change are being felt, the pressure for the entire world to develop a new reliable source of energy is greater than ever. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris.